0: friends, by the time you get this, we should know the results of the Iowa caucuses. So before we get into this week's episode, I just want to say thank you to the millions of people who make this campaign what it is, who phone banked and door knocked, texted and donated, spoke to your parents, co-workers and friends about why this struggle truly is so, so vitally important. Every four years you hear it, that this election is the most important election of our lifetimes. Well, there's a case to be made that this year, it's true. It's not just that we have a corrupt demagogue in the White House, who rules through fear, division, and intimidation. It's not just that we've reached levels of wealth inequality unmatched since the Gilded Age, a plutocracy so imbalanced that we have a billionaire openly trying to buy this election. And it's not just that. All over the world, we are seeing the rise of far-right leaders who channel populist rage against the most vulnerable while allying themselves cynically with capital. It's that, on top of all of that, the clock is ticking on our capacity to keep Large swaths of this planet habitable. All over the world, ecosystems are in collapse. Oceans are acidifying. Entire continents are burning. Climate refugees are already on the move. This moment might just be our last off-ramp before the world we leave our children becomes unrecognizable to the one we inherited. This campaign and the movement behind it are our best possible chance to head that future off of the past and to reverse trend lines that, no matter what the Wall Street Journal and Economist might tell you, have been heading in the wrong direction for decades. And the truth is that we here at HQ are riding a tiger that is a genuine movement, one made up of all of you. That phrase? not me, us, is so much more than a slogan. It's a guiding philosophy that speaks to solidarity, mutual support, and extending a hand to those who need one. Because frankly, we all need solidarity at some point in our lives. Perhaps no one understands that solidarity is at the heart of liberation better than my guest this week, Barbara Smith. If you're not already familiar, Barbara Smith is one of the preeminent Black feminist activists in American history. She was one of the founding members of the Combahee River Collective, the class-conscious, sexuality-affirming Black feminist organization that birthed the term identity politics. And she has advocated for substantive equality and solidarity through her writing, her activism, and her time in elected office. Last week, I caught up with her and I asked her why she, an expert on the interlocking oppressions of race, class, gender, and sexuality, supports Bernie Sanders to be the next president of the United States. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics that are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. Let's get to it. Barbara Smith. I am so honored to be able to talk to you today. I've been a long time admirer of your work, but for those who aren't as familiar, could you introduce yourself? My name is Barbara Smith,
1: and I'm a long time activist in many movements since the 1960s. I'm really happy to endorse Senator Bernie Sanders because in him, I see the issues, the compassion, the perspective the p- plans that will help us to get to where we need to be as a society. Why is that? Well, we have so many injustices in this version of democracy that have not been addressed. We have systemic oppressions. And I think I'm, in fact, I don't think I know that he's the only candidate who has a understanding of why things are the way they are. The fact that we do have people who work three jobs every day and don't have quality housing, their kids don't have access to really good schools, don't have access to health care, all those things that everyone deserves to have, that's what Bernie Sanders stands for. And that's what he wishes to share and bring to everyone in the United
0: States. Can you help explain why you have such authority to talk about interlocking oppressions? Well, the reason that I
1: am thought to have authority around interlocking oppressions is because of the fact that, as I mentioned, I've been politically active and politically active in left of center formations ever since the 1960s. Uh, The reason I have that expertise or that uh, relationship to talking about interlocking oppressions or intersectionality is because in the 1970s, I was involved with starting a black feminist organization based in Boston where I lived at the time. And the name of that organization is the Combahee River Collective. We did political organizing around issues of race, gender, sexuality, class, and a lot of other things as well. So we were organizers, we were not just theorists, but we did write in 1977, something that most people know us for, which is the Combahee River Collective Statement. And in that statement, we talked about how the systems of oppression interlocking, and that those systems create the conditions of our lives. And by our lives, we meant us as Black women. And we talked about how the consequences of those multiple systems of oppression within one person's life was not arithmetic, that it wasn't like add-on, add-on, add-on. You add racism to sexism to homophobia to class oppression. You add them on. We said it was geometric. And by saying it was geometric, what we meant is that they kind of multiply each other into something that cannot be quantified by merely adding them together. So we were trying to build a politic that would be useful for black women, most of whom are working class, and also for other women of color. One of the points that we made in the statement is if black women were free, then everyone else would have to be free because we are affected by all the systems of oppression. So if we could eradicate, address and eradicate all of those systems of oppression, then everybody else would get to come along too. And we also very much believed in coalition work, even though we coined the term identity politics in the statement. And for decades, since 1977, I would ask, I will ask people, academics, people who have access to research and people who do research, have you ever seen identity politics anywhere in writing before 1977, before the Combahee River Collective Statement? And the answer is always no. So I believe we did indeed coin the term I don't believe that people who misuse the term necessarily got it from reading the statement. I don't think that's how concepts and information get circulated. But as I said, even though we talked about the concept of identity politics, what we really meant by that is that black women have a right to set political agendas. That's all that we meant. That's all that we meant. We did not mean that everybody who wasn't a black woman, a young black woman, because we were all in our twenties at that point. Some of us were a little bit older, but we weren't saying that if you are not a younger black woman, probably a lesbian, not everybody in the collective was a lesbian, but most of us were. And, you know, like whatever all other identifiers, if you're not just like us, then you have no place in this
0: struggle. So. Affirmatively, what does identity politics mean to you? Oh, well, to me, what identity politics means is that we
1: acknowledge that people have different relationships to systemic oppression based upon who they are. And that we have to take that into account when we are trying to figure out which way forward and what are we going to do to eradicate and to challenge that oppression and to make a better world and, and a better life uh, for us. So, you know, being—I mentioned you know, that most of us, most of us, or many of us in the collective, were lesbians. I've been out as a lesbian since the mid 1970s, which is a long time ago. When you get right down to it, it was five years or so after Stonewall. So, my experience of being out as a black lesbian is quite different from what I read in the papers, actually, what I see online. Because who reads newspapers any? More I do, (laughs) but as I said, we were involved in the what at that time would have been called uh, the Gay Liberation Movement, or if people were really alert, the Gay and Lesbian Liberation Movement. We always made them say lesbian first. That's how you knew if people were conscious around sexism, because we pointed out to our gay brothers, like... Why don't we say lesbian first? Why is it always gay and lesbian? So we would get people to kind of do that. That's why it's LGBTQ, really. LGBTQIA, because we pushed for, why can't women come first in that? So in any event, the way you know that movement, the uh, gay lesbian and gay liberation movement was at the time, it was like, we all need to come out of the closet. We are all fighting vicious homophobia, dangerous homophobia, violent homophobia, hate crimes, and in many cases, murders. So it was no joke. This is very serious. But what identity politics would bring to that was that, yeah, but if you are a black trans woman, you're in a different relationship to those issues that seemingly have been already defined. So we have to look at the specificity of who we are to figure out the solutions for what we
0: face. What do you see in Bernie's campaign or his messaging that's driven you to want to endorse him? The reason I really trust
1: Bernie Sanders and his candidacy, both in 2016 and now, is because I know he comes from a political place historically that looked at what was going on and faced what was going on with reality as opposed to hype and propaganda so i feel like there there there's so many myths so many stories so many fictions about what it means to be here in the united states of america and a lot of it just isn't even accurate you know the founding documents and all men are created equal and blah 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 it's really interesting how there can be a reputation, that the nation has a reputation for certain things. And then you don't even have to go very far. You know, you don't have to dig deep. You know, you just look at genocide of the indigenous people. And those who were not murdered were removed from their uh, homes and from their land. And chattel, chattel enslavement. and enslavement is like, oops. And I really feel like Senator Sanders, because of the kinds of political involvement that he came from and comes from the fact that he was a part of the student movements of the 1960s, that he was a part of the civil rights struggle, the fact that he did oppose the war in Vietnam and worked to end the war in Vietnam. I trust all that because I was involved in all that too. So that's really, it's kind of a generational gut feeling. (laughs) (laughs) I'm <laughs> uh, like, yeah, I know where he's coming from because we were we were in it together. We do not know each other, but we were in struggles together. The struggles that shaped our present, that we take certain things for granted, like, for example, that black people can walk into the front door of a restaurant or a hotel and ride anywhere they wish on public transportation. That's all taken for granted now. And trust me, in his life, in my life, because we are practically the same age, that was not anything that you could take for granted at the time because it was not permitted. So as I said, I just have this affinity, this kind of connection to what he stands for, a person of integrity. He's a person of integrity. and I And I have really good instincts around that too because I try to be such myself, but I just have this uh, understanding that he wants the best outcomes and the best life for all of us, not just for some of of us. He talks about the 1% versus the 99%, that's real. And that comes out of movements too. Occupy Wall Street popularized and brought forth the concept of the 99%, the majority, that's more than the majority, that's radically everyone, and the 1%. And we live in a society that has vast income inequality, which means that we live in a dysfunctional society with a dysfunctional economy. So what ignited your activism? What, what radicalized you? I was born in 1946, and that means that I was born into Jim Crow. Jim Crow was absolutely what was happening everywhere in the United States. And it did not make any difference that I was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. And because of the objective circumstances of what it meant to be black in the mid 20th century, that was politicizing in and of itself. And it just so happens, uh, luckily, that my growing up years and my coming of age years completely dovetailed and coincided with the civil rights struggle. So we would come home from school in 1959, and what was on TV, but the desegregation of Little Rock High School. And we were in junior high school, my sister and I in 59, but we understood what was going on. We could see what was going on. We had a civil rights movement in Cleveland, and like in many Northern cities, our civil rights movement focused upon school desegregation. Many, many, many of the schools in Cleveland were both segregated and substandard. They would send uh, classes of black students to white schools, but they kept them in segregated classrooms within the white schools in Cleveland, and they would not let the kids eat in the cafeteria, participate in any after-school activities, and probably couldn't even go out on the playground. That's Cleveland, Ohio in the 1950s going into the early 60s. So you take the black kids out of their overcrowded black school, you put them in a white building and you keep them in a segregated classroom. So the civil rights movement was focused on school desegregation and protesting these schools that were being uh, built that would maintain segregation. My sister and I, uh, in 64, we were seniors in high school. And one of the things that the civil rights movement did, the leaders uh, did, was that they really wanted to get students and kids involved in the struggle, particularly because a school boycott was being planned. And the Saturday before the boycott, this is April of 1964, there was a rally at a park in Cleveland that my sister and I went to. We wanted to go. By that time we were making decisions about where we wanted to be and what we wanted to do. And a lot of it was political. And uh, we went to this rally and it was a rally specifically for youth. And I never had had a feeling like that in my entire life. I couldn't believe what I was feeling and experiencing because we were being respected. People thought we were important. We were talking about important things. And from that day to this, I was just at a rally to stop a war against Iran on Saturday, a rally which I helped to plan. So obviously it took, you
0: know, 1964, January 2020, (laughs) same thing. So people have heard that Bernie was an early opponent of the Vietnam War, but not everyone knows the history of his involvement with the Congress of Racial Equality. Can you help explain a little bit what CORE was and what it meant at the time? So the Congress of Racial Equality was basically a northern
1: civil rights organization, but I also have seen it characterized as one of the more left, if not the most left, of the major civil rights organizations. After we graduated from high school, we were on our way to college, but uh, we had like the whole year basically until September to work. And one of the things that my sister and I decided to do was to try to volunteer for CORE. we asked the director of CORE, if we could volunteer, and she allowed us to volunteer. And I often think if she she had not been uh, Ruth Turner, I believe her name was Ruth Turner, legendary uh, person, if she had not been the leader, I'm just wondering what might've happened if these two teenage girls, as we were called at that time, had presented ourselves to someone else and said, we'd really like to do some work here. They might have said, well, there's not really much for you to do. You know, I don't really see you doing. What, what could you do? You just graduated from high school. She fully embraced it. She had been, a, she had been a, a German teacher, a teacher of German in the public school system. And she was so passionately committed to the struggle that she stopped being a teacher and then got involved with CORE. But as I said, CORE was involved with efforts to desegregate public transportation. I think they were involved with the Freedom rights. That was the organization that we gravitated to. We did work in the office, and we also were sent out doing canvassing
0: around housing. So what do you say to people who are kind of dismissive of this idea of a 19-year-old Jewish boy being involved in CORE, people who kind of brush that part of his history and his activism off? Okay, people. (laughs) It
1: was absolutely meaningful for anybody white, anybody white to speak out and stand up against segregation and U.S. apartheid. Anybody. So there are lots of myths, as I said, about U.S. history. One of the myths is that most white people really didn't like the way that racism unfolded and they really didn't like all the bigotry and all the oppression. And they were on the right side. They would have been on the right side of history. No, that was not the case. It was a Small minority of white people in the mid 20th century. And that's what we're talking about. That's a period we're talking about who actually had a clue and a grasp that there's something profoundly wrong and profoundly contradictory about saying you, saying that you are the world's greatest constitutional democracy. And yet, and yet a major percentage of the people in your nation can't vote. (laughs) can't live where they want to live, can't go to school, can't bend over a water fountain and get a sip of water. I mean, it's isn't it crazy? It sounds crazy. But that's what I lived through. That was the world I was born into. So it was absolutely meaningful for Bernie Sanders or for anyone else similarly placed in relationship to our white supremacist structure to say, no, I'm going to step away from that white skin privilege. I'm going to interrogate what is going on here around race. And then I'm going to do what most people never do. I'm going to actually put my body on the line and take a stand and work with those who whose oppression we are committed to ending. That's what Bernie Sanders did. And see, because nobody studies history or teaches history the right way or whatever, and, and also are very prone to lying. We can't help ourselves sometimes for what we don't know, because we live in a situation where people want to keep the truth away from us. So it's not surprising that some people would say, oh, that's no big deal. It was a very big deal. It was a very big deal. And his counterparts were in Cleveland. They were white people and white ministers who took major hits. It was serious. One of the things about the civil rights era and the pre-civil rights era that I think also is not well understood, particularly in the South, is that nowadays when we frame Black Lives Matter, the movement for black lives and racial oppression, we focus a lot on the police because of the incredibly uh, detrimental relationship that policing agencies have with communities of color. That's very real. But the thing about that mid-20th century pre-civil rights or during the civil rights era, every white person, particularly in the South, was a potential physical threat to your well-being. So it wasn't just, and I, unjust is not the right word, it wasn't the police solely that you had to watch out for. It was like the guy at the gas station. It was the person at the store. Look what happened to Emmett Till. Emmett Till and his cousins, I believe, it would have been his cousins, they went, he was from Chicago, what did he know about Jim Crow? He was 14 years old, he was not prepared. And whatever he did or said, the the white woman who was the catalyst for his annihilation, she said in later years that she was culpable and regretful about how that thing had unspooled. But as I said, you had to watch your back around lots and lots and lots of people because you were in a great deal of danger. And yet our people people stood up.
0: pain is made up of, of many movements. And Bernie often says that he's going to be an organizer in chief. Why to you is that so important? Uh, well, among other things, it's the answer to uh, many prayers.
1: An organizer in chief? Wow. Okay. And I know about that. I've heard that that's what he says he will be because he actually understands that it's many people in many different places speaking out and expressing and figuring out strategies and ways to get the things that they and their families need. That's how change happens. I hear organizer-in-chief and I think, yay, yay, wow, finally. We have heard those words before. But I know that Bernie actually understands that what he's saying is that he will be taking his agenda from what people on the ground are concerned about and need, and want, and deserve. That's where the agenda will come from. It won't be top-down. It will be grassroots and bottom-up. I served in elected office for two terms in the city of Albany where I have lived for 35 plus years. And I was on our city council, which is called the Common Council. I live in an economically oppressed, primarily black community, that's who I was serving as a council member, and I was motivated to become a council member by police issues, primarily around public safety and police issues, because we had many, many problems, and we still have those problems. But that's what drew me to the possibility of running for office, which I never thought I would do, and then serving for two terms. The reason I bring it up is that that concept of being an organizer and chief I always say, you don't know what the people want until you talk to them and ask them. You may think it's sidewalks. And they may say, no, we want a store on this corner or in this neighborhood. We don't have any access to quality, healthy food. So you may think it's sidewalks. And they said, no, it's, it's all these overhanging limbs, these trees. <laughs> you know, these trees need to see a forester, you know. <laughs> And you don't know that. You can't make this stuff up in your head. You need to be really, really, really very, very conscious, almost studious to do a good job as a representative. You need to hear and find out what people are concerned about. Bus line, again, you may think it's sidewalks, but then it turns out is that you can't get from my neighborhood, Arbor Hill, to Albany Med, the major employer of people in my neighborhood, because there's no bus route that will get you there. You have to listen to the people, and that's what Bernie does. That's why the movement is so strong, because he listens to the people. Where did you first learn about Bernie in the first place? I've known known about Bernie Sanders for years because of living in upstate New York, and maybe even if I didn't live in upstate New York, uh, I lived in Boston for many years, The fact that we live in the same area of the country and people are always talking about Bernie Sanders this radical mayor of Burlington. Bernie Sanders, the Congress member, you know, and then Senator Bernie Sanders. It's like, I can't remember when I did not know about him. I worked on the 2016 campaign. I was invited to do work on the 2016 campaign with a different campaign structure. We had a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer steering committee. And I was asked to be a member of that. And I also did work on women's issues on the national level in that kind of consulting role. So I was very delighted to work on the 2016 campaign and work very hard on that campaign. And I've been supporting Bernie during this cycle too. I just had not connected to the campaign as a whole, but uh, I'm definitely, I'm just, I'm with Bernie. <laughs> That's all I can say. I'm with, I'm with Bernie. I'm excited. I'm really excited. I'm excited about how well the campaign is going. I'm excited about the excitement on the ground, which is why the campaign is going well. All different kinds of people get it. All different kinds of people, they're hearing a kind of communication. They're hearing a kind of content That they're not getting elsewhere they're hearing dare i say the truth (laughs) and they're hearing a candidate who talks about the actual conditions of their lives as opposed to some version or some fantasy of how regular people live and that is giving people a lot
0: of hope why do you think it's so important for voters who might not have been engaged previously to mobilize now? The way
1: that the dream becomes a reality is that people put in the work. You have to put in the work to get the dream achieved that you wish to see. And in the case of a campaign, that's one of the things that makes it so exciting and so vibrant. It's another thing that makes it hair tearing. You only have a certain amount of time. You can't work on his campaign next year. (laughs) (laughs) or a year from now, it's like we're now in what I call the fish or cut bait season. This is like you either show up and you work with so many millions of others to get what we wish to see, or you sit back and you kind of, you know, you check out, you know, yeah, you're excited, but, oh, no, that's not really me. I don't really like politics. I can't tell you how many times people have said that to me usually talking about local politics uh, where I live. But it's like, you don't know, like politics? I always say, okay, you might, might not like politics, but just w- wait until politics find you. Because to me, everything is political because politics is basically about power and who has power and how is power deployed. That's what politics are. So everything has a political component to it, because if you look at the power factors and who's making the decisions, it's not about necessarily just voting. That's one aspect of politics. But I always feel like if you believe in stuff, then you're supposed to really join in and actually get the work done.
0: But that's just me. You're such an authoritative voice about what Black America and Black women in particular need to, to move forward. So I want to ask you as a Black woman, why you think that Bernie Sanders is the best choice for you and our community more broadly? I believe that Bernie
1: is the best choice because his understanding of why we have the level of inequality that we have, why we have the level of bigotry and discrimination that we have i feel that his understanding of that is deep and it is accurate most of us you know who have these various identities we know that we are experiencing oppression discrimination prejudice racism sexism homophobia transphobia etc we know that these things are happening to us so it's not that we're unaware it's just that we don't necessarily know why and where it comes from. There's some people who think that the reason black women are not uh, respected and are not in the positions uh, that they need to be and are not treated the way that we deserve to be is because people just need to find out more about each other. Well, yes, I think that's very worthwhile. After all, my field is African-American studies. I've devoted my life (laughs) to trying to help people to understand more about the black experience. But I think that we also have to understand what does racism and sexism, what does it serve? What how does it fit in with the political economy of this nation that drives, drives, drives so much? The need for labor to get the riches of this unsettled land, and by unsettled I mean they hadn't exploited and and stripped and taken the wealth out of the land. When they got here, it was pristine, and there were hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, probably millions of people, living here already. They just they discovered nothing, but when they you know came and claimed it, that's called colonialism. They said, "Oh my God, this place is huge, and I don't know how we're going to ever extract the wealth if we don't have a labor force." So they tried different you know solutions, didn't work you know, indentured servants didn't work, indigenous people, that did not work either. And then they began to steal African people, bring them to the Americas, all of the Americas, North, South, and Central, and to use us as free labor. I don't know what their thought process was around the people who they were kidnapping, but it was the ideology of white supremacy followed the economic imperative. They made up an ideology of white supremacy to justify the super exploitation of black bodies. So which came first? The economic imperative of exploiting the land for profit. That came first. And then they said, huh, you know, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. Let's make up some stuff about who these people are so that we don't have to feel so ashamed or nervous about the fact that we know we're committing crimes and sins. So, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I feel that Bernie Sanders understands what I just said. We're not talking about hierarchies of oppression. Black feminism, the black feminism that we built and that the Combahee River Collective built was not about a hierarchy of oppressions. It was about understanding how the oppressions fit together and not dealing with just the manifestations and the superficialities of oppression, but the roots of why things are the way they are. So that's what I think Bernie brings. He brings it to more than the table. He brings it to the nation.
0: Thank you, thank you so much for your time today, Barbara. I've really enjoyed it and I, and I can't wait to see you out on the trail as we trip around this country, getting our guy elected. Thanks again. That's it for this week. Once again, here's a quick reminder to check your local primary rules, which may require you to register or re-register before a certain deadline in order to participate in the upcoming election. Check your local rules and make sure your voice is heard. Hear the Burn is produced by me, Brianna Joy Gray, Ben Dalton, and Christopher Moore. Let us know what you think at heartheburn at berniesanders.com or else take to Twitter with the hashtag... You're the Burn. I love, love, love to read your feedback on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get these episodes. So be sure to rate, review, or like us whenever you get a chance. If you'll indulge me, I just want to read one particularly warm review from last week. Zally C said, gets you really thinking about what's accepted as normal versus what can be done to change. Helps defeat the cynicism that's been ingrained, being a corporate slave and dispels the doubt of actual progressive thinking. I love Bernie, but this was educating and informative on several levels that isn't just about bragging about our amazing candidate. Gets in depth about why his policies aren't just wishful thinking and how they can actually make an impact, especially amongst the moderates. Really grateful for this podcast. It's been my favorite and only time I actually rated. Thank you, Sally C. I really appreciate this. That really puts the finger on exactly what we're trying to do here. And please let us know, all of you, if you ever have any topics um, or concerns that you want us to cover. We're listening, we're watching, and we're only doing this for you. Till next time.